1: wherever you get your podcasts. Historic. It's a word that we shouldn't take lightly, especially those of us who have an interest in history and who look at American politics with a 230-year span. The word is thrown about often. Everything, of course, is history. Once it occurs, and so once it can't be deleted or altered... And so, in a sense, it's historic. But yet, not everything really makes the adjective historic. A better word for it, what we really mean, might be ultra-historic. 2004, for instance, was not really a historic election, though it meant a lot to people at the time. 1976 was not historic, per se, though anyone in the Carter campaign, I'm sure, felt that they were making history. 1912 Probably was for the three-way excitement of having a Republican incumbent president, a Democratic challenger, and a third-party candidate who was an ex-president. Certainly 1912 fits the bill. 1948, for the surprise upset comeback of incumbent President Harry Truman. 1960, for the first election that was won by a Catholic in the United States, JFK. 1896, because Bryan was the most radical nominee of a party up until that time. And probably, with the exception of George McGovern, the most radical nominee of a major party ever. 1876, for the dispute in that election. 1860, because of Lincoln and the four way split that occurred then. 1864, for the first significant election during wartime. 1828, because of Andrew Jackson, the first Western president, and the first president to truly earn or at least claim a popular mandate. 1800, Jefferson in the so called Second American Revolution. And of course, the first election, 1788. 2008 clearly joins these elections, without a doubt. There are at least 15 ways that make this election historic, but of course, there's the most obvious the one the nation has elected the first African- American man who went from serious contender to frontrunner to nominee to frontrunner in the general election to president-elect much is being rightfully made of this event it's a progress it's an achievement for Americans but I can be forgiven if it feels like this event happened way too late at least with the time span of history that I look It's an achievement, certainly, and a progress, certainly, for modern America. A credit to both parties that race largely did not enter this general election. And that in counties with significant white populations and very little black population to speak of, Obama did better than the white male Democrat who ran four years before. So it is a transcending election in many ways. But you'll forgive me if I can't give America an A-plus in this regard. That if I can't just look at this modern event and forgive all of past history. I can't avoid thinking that the event of November 4th, 2008 should have and could have occurred long ago. And not just as an empty phrase or something I'm just saying, a hope, a wish, but as a matter of analysis of history. It might be useful to think about a scene that occurred in the halls of Congress in 1874. This was, of course, not even 10 years since the guns fell silent at Appomattox Courthouse, and the Civil War ended. President Johnson, at this point, had been impeached and acquitted, and Grant was now the President of the United States, He'd actually been elected for a second term. And the Republican Congress attempted to pass a civil rights bill, which they called by that very name. This was not the 1960s. The year was 1874. There were seven black members of Congress during the Reconstruction period. Small in number, but they were still very influential. Some of these congressmen on their trip to Washington faced discrimination. They were not allowed to stay at hotels or eat at taverns on the way to take their service in the nation's capital. And together, With other uh, Republican members of Congress, they produced legislation that would have banned discrimination in accommodations, in transportation, and in public schools. This was not Brown versus the Board of Education. This was 1874. A very unlikely figure appeared on the floor of the House of Representatives as this bill was being debated. He represented the state of Georgia, an old, seemingly frail man, who had to be helped to the podium by colleagues. James Garfield, who at this point was a U.S. congressman, said that the man looked like a skeleton. It was Alexander Stevens, the former vice president of the Confederacy, a man who had taken arms up against his own country. But now, after most all Southerners had been pardoned by President Johnson, and after a special election Stevens was a U.S. Congressman from Georgia. He rose and said he wished to speak against the Civil Rights Bill, out of no prejudice, he said, to any man, woman, or child on the basis of race. But he was concerned that federal legislation would turn us into what he called a centralized empire. It was better, he said, to leave this up to the states. It was a powerful and eloquent argument from a very famous man and an early form of what would become the states' rights mantra so often argued in the Congressional Chamber for years to come. But in 1874, something interesting happened. The next day, Robert Elliott, a black congressman, rose to the same podium Stevens had spoke at. Robert Brown Elliott, a black congressman from South Carolina, representing a district, including Columbia, South Carolina, just a slight majority of black voters. man who had been educated in England, served in the British Navy, came to South Carolina in 1867, formed a law practice which thrived organized the state's Reconstruction Constitution, participated in the first South Carolina legislature after Reconstruction, was almost elected Speaker, Uh, became a leader in the South Carolina National Guard, and organized this militia unit to help to fight the newly emergent secretive organization designed to intimidate black voters, the Ku Klux Klan. He was elected easily and overwhelmingly to two terms, in the House of Representatives. It was said he knew every man involved in politics in South Carolina and that he had one of the greatest outdoor speaking voices in the state. We don't have tapes. We don't have video. We don't know what Robert Brown Elliott sounded like. But we have to piece together history sometimes. The available evidence is the effect on people that they wrote about in newspapers or in their diaries, etc. There's little doubt that this would have been an inspiring man to see speaking. He was radical, even by the standards of the other black members of Congress. And he never missed an opportunity to speak up for the people that he represented. He spoke out against the Ku Klux Klan, supported many bills to try to curb that organization and to support the rights of citizens to vote. And he spoke up forcefully for civil rights. He acknowledged that he admired Stevens for his eloquence and honored him and respected him but that in a matter involving the welfare of his race, he must oppose. He did not think that the Congress needed a lesson from a man who took arms against his country and tried to form a government based on slavery. And he added a powerful statement and a bit of a warning. There are now free men, he said, to meet him or others in debate, and demand that rights enjoyed by their former oppressors shall be accorded to those who, even in the darkness of slavery, kept loyal to the Union. It was without question a stunning moment. What Eliot had in effect said is, go ahead, make your argument about states' rights. But there will be people, intelligent, professional black politicians, who will oppose you in debate and be your equal on the congressional floor. A former Confederate second-in-command had been answered in the House by a man who, though not a former slave himself, was the representative of former slaves. The Civil Rights Bill did pass, though, with some of the objectionable conditions drop, including a ban on discrimination in public schools, something that would need to be addressed almost 100 years later. And in 1874, such a debate on the House of Representatives was possible. It would not be possible just 10 years or 20 years later. In effect, Robert Brown Elliott was proven wrong. Even he, although he retired on his own will from the House of Representatives to take a position in his state of South Carolina, he would be forced out of office in 1876 as a Reconstruction government was kicked out in South Carolina. Federal troops were removed from South Carolina. And it was not simply because of a group of laws now referred to as Jim Crow laws, but really because of intimidation and violence. Uh, There's no other word for it than reign of terror in the southern states, where areas that had voted overwhelmingly, for uh, President Grant in 1872 recorded no Republican votes by the 1876 election. Voters were simply too scared to come out. Sadly, there was no real federal protection for the right of these newly enfranchised citizens to vote for almost a 100 years. I have no doubt that the federal government were able to maintain protection for basic voting rights, and that if This balance continued, where in some southern states, sure, there would certainly be former Confederates representing, and also a group of talented black politicians. That balance had continued. I have no doubt that there would be a new generation of such politicians, and a new generation after that, and that the moment that we experienced, November fourth, two 2008, would have happened earlier. There is no reason at all but for the Jim Crow and the reign of terror that existed in the south by the 1920s or at least the 1940s there could have been a black president or vice president it took just two generations after the civil rights bill of 1864 to elect a man who was born just before that bill's passage i don't bring this information about history up to be a party boober or to make november 4th 2008 seem any less significant It is certainly an event, and it's something that modern America can salute itself for. I also think with the prism of history, it's way too late, and it wasn't quite a natural progression from the point of African Americans being enfranchised in the 1860s to 2008, where we've elected an African American president. It was a zigzag it was a step forward and three steps back all the way. Struggle at every turn. Although Jesse Jackson ran in 1984 and 1988, his long shot run was not serious enough to make him any more than a power broker in the party. Colin Bowell was mentioned in 1996 and would have been a serious threat, I believe, to Clinton's reelection, although it would have been difficult for him to work along with the Newt Gingrich Congress. Or contend with the improving economy that was helping to re elect Clinton. Then deals with the most obvious reason this election is historic the election of an African American finally in America. It also appears, at least at first, to be a high turnout election, though not the highest. There could be anywhere from 60 to 63 uh, percent turnout in this election, and 2004 had about 60. So, better party, campaign apparatus, the huge uh, increase in voter registrations of the Obama campaign. It looks like Democratic turnout up a little bit and Republican turnout down a little bit. Money raised in these uh, modern elections being spent more and more on get-out-the-vote operations than in the 80s or 90s when TV commercials got most of that money. But this is an election that really spotlighted, as 2004 did to a certain extent, and people all over this nation, especially in the swing states that mattered most, were experiencing long lines. And it's a testament to them that in many cases they waited in line. But that shouldn't have to be the case. No one should have to wait two and a half to three hours to vote. And money being spent for commercials to remind people to vote might better be spent in improving facilities. This is an election that sort of proves we can't just sit there and ask, why don't people vote? There's probably a lot of people in this election that wanted to vote and had to go back to work. There are many other reasons why this election is historic, some of which, in the face of the large reason why 2008 is historic, might seem minor, but deserve mention. There were gains for women in this election. Although it didn't turn out, as many might have predicted in 2007, that we would elect a woman president, a serious woman contender, in the Democratic primary, really the front-runner through most of it, came fairly close to being the party's nominee and probably elected in a general election. The second female VP nominee was had in this election, uh, which probably ensures that the third female VP nominee will not be such of a big deal, and that it will be sort of normal. If a woman politician sort of comes from the right state, has the right politics, and it works— We could see a female uh, VP nominee or a female nominee for president, perhaps, in the very next election. The length of the campaign was history-making. There was talk of 08 as soon as 04 ended, but it officially began in early 2007. While Bill Clinton announced his campaign in September of 1991, just a few months before the primaries would begin, his wife would have to announce in January of the year before the election. The money spent in the campaign also makes it historic. Millions of dollars. Much of it raised from individual donors, not the result of the campaign finance reform that John McCain had passed, but the result of new technologies and of small donors feeling more involved, wanting to give a donation to the candidate of their choice. Two sitting senators were in the race, which meant that this country elected the first sitting senator for the first time since 1960. That also meant that you had two candidates who could, in fact, have an effect on legislation in Washington. A small effect being one of a body of a hundred, of course, but still had an effect. And that was seen during the financial crisis that occurred in the middle of September. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions
0: with your money? Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance Podcast. Every day we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Where both McCain and Obama were summoned back to Washington from the campaign trail to try to help convince their members to vote for the bailout bill. Because of this crisis and because of the fact that the candidates were two sitting senators, both of whom were at least based out of Washington. There was a little bit less of the anti-Washington rhetoric this year. John McCain, of course, presented himself as a maverick. Barack Obama as a representative of a new kind of politics. But there wasn't as much Washington bashing. Republican VP nominee Sarah Palin did a little bit of this, but it just didn't connect, especially in this year, where the Beltway compared somewhat favorably to Broadway in how they behaved. This, of course, became one of several elections in U.S. history where an economic downturn was had in the middle of the election. Of course, the others would be 1920, 1992, 1932, 1980, 1896. These elections featured recessions, clear recessions in the election year. And in every case, the incumbent party lost. At the end of the Cold War... America added two states to the Union. Territories didn't cut it. We had to enfranchise people to show that we were a freer society than the Soviet Union, the evil empire. So in 1959, Hawaii and Alaska came into the Union on the same year and changed the flag for the last time. This was the first year that national candidates, in fact two national candidates, Barack Obama and Sarah Palin, came from these states. Barack Obama, although he's listed as a resident and of course serves as a senator from Illinois, was born in Hawaii. Sarah Palin, of course, hailing from Alaska and being the governor there. 2008 was the first election with no vice president or incumbent president since 1952. And one could really say 1928. Since 1952, Albin Barkley former Kentucky senator and Truman's vice president, really mounted just a quick and insignificant uh, play at the convention, not really a full campaign. So you'd go to 1928, when Al Smith, the governor of New York, ran against Herbert Hoover, the Commerce Secretary, under the Coolidge administration. Before that, you'd have to go to 1920, and before that, 1908, to get to an election where there were no incumbent vice presidents or presidents running. But these five elections, 52, 28, 1920, 1908, and of course 2008, have a common lesson. It doesn't matter if the president or vice president is running. It doesn't matter if a new person is chosen from the party, even if they didn't serve in the administration. It doesn't matter how far away you get. In this case, there was a self-defined, maverick senator who had taken positions against the president in the past, and a governor who had nothing to do with the Bush administration. Obama still defeated, in a sense, George W. Bush in this election, and McCain and Palin were linked with George Bush and his failures, and that's who voters voted against in 2008. Just as Harding really defeated Woodrow Wilson in 1920, and Eisenhower really defeated the Truman administration, and not so much Adelaide Stevenson, the governor of Illinois, in 1952. This was a very odd election in that the incumbent party nominees had nothing to do with the administration. Again, we'd have to go back to 1952 to find a similar situation. This country has now had another election held during a war. So 2008 joins 1812, 1864, in an election being held during wartime. It adds to the historical trend map. With all the excitement over electing the first African-American president, of course not. The, The news pundits aren't looking so much at every trend that's broken, but in a sense, we swapped horses. The old adage created by Abraham Lincoln and entered into the political legends is that voters don't tend to vote out incumbent presidents during wartime. They don't swap horses while crossing streams. We still haven't seen a historical example of an incumbent president not being reelected during wartime. But of course, Harry Truman and Lyndon Johnson resigned or didn't run again before testing that theory. We have seen an example, 1968, of a switch between parties in the middle of a war, and now 2008 adds to that, and does a little bit of damage to the whole swapping horses theory. It does appear that American voters can vote out a president or president's party during wartime. Though, being the incumbent party during a war or crisis may be a slight advantage. International campaigning, with McCain making many visits to Iraq and Obama visiting Iraq but also completing a whirlwind tour of uh, Europe, culminating in a historic speech in Germany. McCain canceled planned visits to Colombia, but this election still had a bit of an international stumping. A little bit of an element of international stumping. In this election, Iowa and New Hampshire were saved. Their role as the first and early states were saved. Barack Obama won Iowa and ended up winning the presidential election. It's a boost for Iowa. Despite Giuliani's attempt to wait out these states and make Florida the new momentum state, he failed and Iowa became more important in this election than ever. Iowa also became an important state in the general election. This brings up another point about 2008. New swing states were created. Sure, Ohio and Florida were important as they had been in other years during Clinton's election, in the 2000 election, in the 2004 election. But now Virginia, Iowa, Colorado, Nevada were the big swing states this year. And Virginia voted Democrat for the first time since 1964. Americans didn't split tickets in this election. They voted all Democrat, Congress, House of Representatives, Senate, President, up and down the ticket. This is also despite the fact that Democrats won control of the House of Representatives in the Senate two years ago. Arguments for the two-party system and arguments by Republicans that Democrats should share blame, since they control the body of the federal government, didn't really work. America voted for a candidate that, by the standards of the 1988 election, was unelectable. Barack Obama, this was a liberal candidate, had a fairly liberal voting record, to be certain, and yet... He was still elected president. He was also a Northerner, a blue stater, though certainly with a strong African American support in the South, helped win over states in that region. North Carolina, Virginia, and Florida were put in play. Americans also elected a candidate that prior to 2004 was unknown, and that prior to 2007 was unknown to the greater audience of American voters. But American voters have done this before in the past. Clinton, Woodrow Wilson, Jimmy Carter, Grover Cleveland, Warren Harding, these are presidents who were largely unknown to the greater electorate that easily voted them into office. The presidency in America seems to be That kind of office. While experience is important, Americans do try out new people. And they're eager to see what can happen if they introduce a president into a gridlock situation. There are a couple of other historical trends. that This election, the 2008 election, just helped to confirm losing the House two years before a presidential election is a bad omen for a president and his party. Winning a close election in the presidential election prior is an omen and a danger sign for an incumbent party. Bush won 2004 very narrowly. Truman won 1948 very narrowly. And Woodrow Wilson just barely carried California and thus the election in 1916. And all three of these presidents saw their party lose in the very next election. A low polling incumbent also hurts the party's nominee. And a larger point of the 2008 election about polls. For all their faults, for all the comments people will make about polls, that they're not accurate, that they don't reach everyone, That uh, in this election it was common to talk about a Bradley effect, referring to the former um, former mayor of Los Angeles who would, would poll higher than the actual vote. There was some feeling that the polls wouldn't work. But comparing some of the projections of polls running up to election day to the electoral results, we see that the polls were mostly right. And the comments made by media that the polls were tightening, the polls were changing, don't listen to the polls, anything could happen on election day, didn't bear out. The polls for the most part were right. A New York City mayor did not become president in the 2008 election and so Rudolph Giuliani joins DeWitt Clinton and John Lindsay another other New York City mayors that were talked about for higher offices perhaps leading to the presidency. It just so far hasn't worked out very well. New York City is and has been throughout history such a different place than the rest of America. That although uh, the New York City mayor is a powerful office and because they control so many appointments and agencies, a lot more than mayors in other cities do, it's been characterized as the second toughest job in the world. But it's still tough for New York City mayors. And we'll see if Mr. Bloomberg becomes a candidate any in the future. A losing vice presidential candidate did not obtain his party's nomination. John Edwards ran, uh, did come in second in Iowa, and that was the last moment, really, of the Edwards 2008 campaign. He was not significant at all until the point at which he uh, endorsed Barack Obama, which was rather late. And then when a scandal revealed that he had had an extramarital affair. But well prior to that scandal, he was getting nowhere. And it's a, maybe a confirmation of the trend that we've seen, and we did a podcast of this in the past, that losing vice presidential candidates are a little bit at a disadvantage. This is a very important topic, since the losing vice presidential candidate on the Republican Party is being talked about in some circles as perhaps becoming the the newly resurgent leader of um, a new group of Republicans that might try to take over the party. Highly questionable from a historical standpoint, the one example we have, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, losing vice presidential candidate of 1920, won in 1932. A lot of different circumstances there, and a large time period between the two elections. It's not clear if a losing vice presidential candidate can come and win in the next election? Do they get blamed for the loss? Remember, McCain will not be a factor in 2012, unless something very surprising happens. McCain will not be a factor in 2012. He may still be a senator from Arizona, but he won't be in that uh, nomination process in the debates running, being questioned uh, every day. Sarah Palin will, and she'll be the one that publicly will at least be associated with the loss in 2008. New Republicans may emerge that uh, won't have that taint. So that is going to be a, a thing to watch as we move forward. These are among the myriad reasons that 2008 is uh, going to be considered a historic election. I'm sure there's more, and if you, you wish to comment on the uh, MyHistoryCanBeatUpYourPolitics.com website with uh, your reasons, that would be great. With History Beating Up Politics... I'm Bruce Carlson.